The text for our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Hebrews 3, 7 to 15. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested Me, tried Me, and saw My works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known My ways. So I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. At this point, I want to call our kids forward. Well, the verses that we just read are very interesting. They teach us a lot. The first thing I want to explain to you is that they are a quote. A quote means that they're words from another book, and they're being used here because of what they say. So here in Hebrews chapter 3, Paul is quoting words. He's reading words from the book of Psalms. Verses 7 through 11 of what we just read come from Psalm 95. Now, the reason I say that this is interesting is because it teaches us something very important about the Bible and about the church. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about our beautiful building. I'm talking about all of God's people everywhere at all times. Paul uses Psalm 95, which was written 3,000 years ago, to teach us today, he says many times, today, about the danger of not believing God. When we read the stories of the Old Testament, the stories of Noah, or Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Ruth, or Samson, or David, or Jeremiah, or Esther, or Daniel, we are reading about the grace of God, the love of God, in the life of God's people. And so, we are to understand these things as talking to us today as God's people. Now, in Psalm 95, King David is talking about the people who left Egypt. Now, this is a group of people who experienced things that we could only dream about. They saw the Lord bring punishments upon Egypt in order to save them. They saw God turn all the water of Egypt into blood. They saw God fill the land of Egypt with flies, with lice, with frogs. They saw God send hail and lightning. The hail destroyed all the crops of Egypt and the lightning burned them all up. They saw God kill all the firstborn of Egypt, animals as well as people. And through all these things, God's people were completely safe. Nothing happened to them. And then, God led them out of Egypt by Moses. When they got out of Egypt, they came to the edge of the sea. And then suddenly, the army of Egypt was coming out after them. God made a large cloud come down and block the army of Egypt so they couldn't see where they were going. And so they just had to stand still until the cloud went away. 
While the cloud was blocking their way, God opened the sea so that the people of God could walk right through the middle of it. The water was piled up like giant walls on both sides, and they walked through it like they were walking down a hallway. When they got through the sea safely, God removed the cloud from in front of Egypt, and their army ran right into the middle of the sea. And God made the waters come crashing back down, and it killed the whole army of Egypt. Then God's people came to a mountain where they heard God speak to them. They actually heard His voice booming down from the mountaintop. And Moses went up, and God gave him the Ten Commandments, which God wrote Himself on stone. When they left this mountain, they walked through the wilderness, and God gave them food every day. When they woke up every morning, there was something on the ground, kind of like snowflakes, but it was actually something like bread. And they could cook this in a variety of ways. And the reason that Paul tells us about them, and the reason why David tells us this, is because these people who saw so many wonderful things from God still refused to believe in Him. And so most of them were left to wander in the wilderness until they died. Even though they came out of Egypt, they never got to enter the promised land. The promised land was a picture of heaven. And these people, even though they were with God's church, and by that I mean that they lived with God's people, they traveled with God's people, and they got to see God's love and blessings, they refused to believe in God. And so they were not allowed to enter the promised land. They did not go to heaven. And this is a warning for us. Many people may belong to a church. They may have their names listed as members of a church. But in their hearts, they don't believe in God. They don't trust His Bible. They don't rely on Jesus to save them. I want you to please pay attention to the rest of the sermon this morning because we're going to learn a lot more about this. I will pray and then you can return to your seats, okay? Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin this morning by linking today's text to the immediate context our text from last week, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and to the first two chapters. Now, chapters 1 and 2 argued Jesus' supremacy by appealing to many passages in the Psalms which argued that the promised Messiah is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. The argument progresses to show that if this be true, then obviously Jesus is superior to angels, to the temple, to all the prophets, kings, and priests, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Last Sunday, we saw Paul argue Jesus' supremacy over Moses. In other words, over the whole 
Old Testament administration of the covenant. And the reason, of course, is that the whole Old Testament administration of the covenant was merely a foreshadowing. It was prophetic. It all anticipated Jesus. Persisting in the the old ways once Christ fulfilled them is exceedingly sinful then because it's a rejection of Christ. It's not just that it's stupid to prefer shadow over substance. It's morally evil because it betrays unbelief in the promises themselves. So Paul is going to argue that this is the same sin committed by that generation that God killed in the wilderness. So our outline this morning is as follows. Number one, unbelief is not primarily intellectual. Secondly, unbelief is culpable. And thirdly, I'm going to shorten what it says on the back of the bulletins there. Unbelief permeates the visible church. So our first point, unbelief is not primarily intellectual. I want you to notice something about the text. God does not locate unbelief in the mind. Verse 10, which is quoting Psalm 95, declares God's indictment of the unbelievers in the Old Testament church. They always go astray in their hearts. Notice the words, in their hearts, not in their heads. And then in verse 12, Paul applies this indictment to the present with a warning about an evil heart of unbelief. And I want to show you how the Bible typically handles unbelief. I want you to notice how the Bible always locates unbelief in the heart, not in the head. This is on full display, of course, in the entire book of Proverbs. It's very clear from the examples that that it gives that Proverbs always uses the words foolishness or folly as synonyms for sin. In many places it's implied, in other places it's outright stated. For example, Proverbs 22 and verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. We tend to think of foolishness as an intellectual trait. The Bible defines it as moral, a matter of the heart. I mean, you don't apply the rod of correction to intellectual weakness. You apply it to disobedience, to rebellion. Another example is that gross sins against God's law are frequently in Scripture, frequently called committing folly in Israel. Another example, Ecclesiastes 9.3 reads, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness, i.e. insanity, madness is in their hearts while they live. The love of evil is plainly called madness or insanity. If I were to grab the average guy off the street and ask him about insanity, without doubt, he would say that it's a condition of the mind. The Bible equates it with the love of evil and locates it in the heart. So our assertion is simple. Unbelief is never a simple intellectual issue. It's always an issue of the heart. And Scripture always identifies the problem as a love for sin. Scripture says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You notice the Bible doesn't say the fool says in his mind or the fool says with his mouth there is no God, but with his heart, in his heart. Agnostics and atheists constantly chalk up their unbelief to a supposed lack of evidence for the existence of God. The simple fact of the matter is, that's a lie, and our text proves it. Actually, this reminds me of the Westminster Shorter Catechism's treatment 
of the first commandment. I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that God actually forbids atheism in the first commandment. Question 47 of the Shorter Catechism asks, what is forbidden in the first commandment? And the answer is the first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God is God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. The larger catechism expounds this answer more fully uh, in the same, to the answer to the same question and the sin that it lists first as being forbidden by the first commandment is atheism in denying or not having a God. When God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, he is saying that every single human being in existence is bound by the very fact of his existence to believe in God and worship only him. Failure or refusal to do this is not a matter of evidence. It is a matter of willful rejection of what one knows to be true. How could atheism be sin unless it's an act done against known truth, against a positive precept? Romans 1 speaks of God's wrath on sin, and among the causes for it is the fact that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness and exchange the truth for a lie. Scripture is declaring that no one, no matter how adamantly they assert the opposite, no one is ignorant of God's existence and His moral accountability to Him. That is a fact. No one enters this world devoid of the knowledge that God is real, that God created all things, that God governs the universe, and that all men will one day stand before God in judgment. No one. And anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Second point. Unbelief is culpable. Now by culpable, I mean to say that it isn't morally neutral. It is an act that incurs actual moral guilt before God. Unbelief is a moral act, not primarily an intellectual one, and therefore it is not morally neutral. Unbelief has no relation to evidence. It is a disposition of the heart in the teeth of known truth. Therefore, to not believe in God and His Word is sin. And it's sin precisely because no one doesn't know better. Say what they will. The word unbelief itself is significant. The Bible does not use the word disbelief. It uses the word unbelief. Disbelief implies that there may be reason to question or doubt the issue under or the claim under consideration. Unbelief implies intention. It implies knowing better. Refusal to believe what one knows to be true. And let's talk about evidence for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Are Christians, that is, those who read, study, and believe the Bible and actually adhere to its teachings, are they the ones who blaspheme God, who pollute the air and the airwaves with profanity and obscenity? Are they the ones who live in fornication and adultery, who traffic in sodomy and other unnatural uncleannesses, who crowd our jails with murderers and thieves? No, they are not. Christians are not the ones weighing down future generations with usurious debt. Christians are not the ones denying biology so basic that even blind cavefish can see it. Christians are not the ones 
promoting sodomy, incest, pedophilia, abortion, and Marxist race theories by way of the entertainment and education industries. Christians are not the ones creating drugs that mask symptoms rather than cure diseases. No, sir. The tree is known by its fruit. These things are the works of darkness. Unbelief corrupts everything it touches because it springs from a sin-loving, God-hating heart. It loves and believes the lie. So when I look at Hollywood and D.C., I can honestly say that as a Christian, it's an honor to be their enemy. Their unbelief and their evil lives are as good a piece of evidence of the truth of Christianity as one could ask for, because a tree is known by its fruits. We now come to our third point, that unbelief permeates the visible church. Let me remind us that this is really a warning addressed to us. When Paul presents the murmuring Israelites, he's warning Christians. This letter, as we noted before, is addressed to Hebrews, not Jews. Hebrews was written to people it identifies as the children of Abraham according to the promise, not merely according to the flesh. In Galatians 3, Paul says that those who believe in Christ are the true offspring of Abraham according to the promise. Now we need to say something briefly about the makeup of the visible church. When Israel left Egypt, Scripture calls them a mixed multitude. That's the visible church in a nutshell. This mixed multitude consisted then and consists today of three groups. There are the true believers, those who walk by faith and not by sight, men who believe God and it is accounted to them for righteousness. Secondly, there were the unbelievers, men who tagged along because of the blessings of covenant life. These are people who had seen God's favor upon Israel and His wrath upon Egypt. And they sided with Israel for simply for utilitarian reasons. And thirdly, there were the rank-and-file believers who were weak in their faith most of the time. And it is to this group that the warnings of Hebrews are addressed. These people lived in the middle of a tension between the strong, vigorous defenders of the faith and those who, like the benefits of a society built upon the principles of God's Word, but didn't actually believe God's Word. That tension can often be very overwhelming. When the majority are unbelievers and they're pressing you to compromise the doctrines and the ethics of the kingdom of God, and they mock the devout worshipers of God as a bunch of racist, narrow-minded bigots, with whom are most people going to side? We tend to think of the battle between good and evil as being represented by conflict between the church and the world. And most of the time, it's actually between the true church and the false church. In many places around this country, the political system that promotes sodomy and infanticide and a host of other abominations took root in communities because the churches had already apostatized from the gospel and were promoting unbelief in the, in the authority of God's word. I frequently mention the fable of Aesop about the eagle who is shot with an arrow, the haft of which is equipped with some of his own feathers. And the moral is that we often give our enemies the very weapons they use against us. How often have you heard public figures who don't possess a scintilla of faith in God 
appeal to so-called Christian virtues in order to promote evil. They didn't make that rubbish up. They got it from apostates like Washington Gladden or Walter Rauschenbusch. The false church gave the world the weapons that it now uses against the true church. And this reality explains something very important about what our text is doing when it applies the Old Testament history to New Testament pastoral concerns. In addressing Christians who are facing the temptation to water down their faith and to make concessions so as to not offend the unbelievers, God takes us right back to the Exodus and that stiff-necked generation in order to apply New Testament doctrine. God uses Old Testament history. Now that tells us something very important. We mentioned this to the children. There is no continuity between Old Testament Israel and the modern state of Israel founded in 1948. If we read the Bible that way, we're misreading it and we're openly rejecting God's very own method of applying the practical lessons of the past to the doctrinal concerns of the present. I mean, right off the bat, in this book, the first two verses of this epistle say, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. There are no future words of God coming down the pike. The New Testament church is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to His people in the Old Testament. Every promise made by God through the Old Testament prophets regarding the future state and glory of His people is fulfilled in the New Testament church. Either already fulfilled or in the works. There are no prophecies of a future golden age with a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and a newly commissioned caste of priests offering animal sacrifices again. Christ put an end to that forever when He died and split the temple veil in two. And He further drove this point home by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. From that day forward, any attachment to the Old Testament age of types and shadows became an act of treason against Christ. Remember we noted how this epistle was written during that interesting and difficult period of transition. That's important to remember. I'm going to give you a really, really kind of dumb example. Many of us were taught that it's bad to chew our nails. And when someone catches us doing it, we free, we'll freely admit that we, we know that it's wrong, but, you know, I'm just so nervous. Something as inane as chewing your nails makes you feel uncomfortable because your upbringing told you that it was wrong, right? Well, how much more uncomfortable do you think Jewish converts to the Christian faith must have felt in those first days of the Christian era? Suddenly, you're told that there's no longer a prohibition on eating what was formerly labeled unclean food. You can now eat ham or bacon or shrimp or blood sausage. You'd feel very uneasy about that at first. The point, though, to remember is that God's Word defines right and wrong, not our upbringing. And God gave these people a considerable amount of time to get with the program, so to speak. In many of his epistles, Paul handles questions about dietary laws and Old Testament events like new moons. No one could honestly say that God had not been long-suffering. 
Peter makes this very point when he mentions Paul's epistle to the Hebrews in 2 Peter 3. So when this transition was finalized, one was clearly walking in unbelief to persist in the religious expressions of the Old Testament religion. Now, we may not be inclined to to take this point so seriously, but Scripture clearly does. And the Scripture does so because it is an evidence of unbelief. For hundreds of years, the prophets foretold these events. Christ rebuked His disciples, saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The sin under consideration here is that of wavering between Christianity and the salvation by works religion of the scribes and Pharisees. These readers were suffering intense persecution from the synagogue, and such temptation always comes with this stipulation. Look, just recant your faith, just return to the way things were, and you'll be forgiven. Paul likens this return to Pharisaical religion to the unbelief of the apostates in the wilderness. That is powerful. Because, let's ask some questions. Did anyone ever have more visible and tangible evidence for God's existence than they? I don't think so. They visibly saw the sea split open making a dry pathway before them with walls of water hundreds of feet high. They passed through dry shod and watched the Egyptian army drown in the pathway through the waters when it closed upon them. They stood at Mount Sinai and heard the voice of God Himself. They received the Ten Commandments written in stone with God's own finger. They were fed manna, a food which by all accounts sounds delicious. They were given water out of a rock twice. They were led by the visible presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When the fierce heat of the wilderness could have harmed them and their herds as they traveled, God's very presence was a shelter of shade. When the darkness of the wilderness could have swallowed them up by night, God's presence was their light. These things are commemorated in the Psalms. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Also commemorated in the Psalms is the woeful tale of their unbelief. Psalm 78, Psalm 95, Psalm 106 are such examples. And Paul here cites Psalm 95. And as he quotes it, there is now a longer legacy of unbelief than the mere 40 years of the Exodus. There's the era of the judges. There's the apostasy under Solomon. There's the schism in the church after Solomon's death. There's the open return to paganism in Israel and the constant hybridization of God's worship in Judah that provoked God to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel forever and to send Judah into 70 years of exile in Babylon. When those 70 years were over, many of the Jews stayed in the land of their exile. They had so turned from God that they were no longer interested in living in the promised land and awaiting the imminent arrival of the Messiah. The ones who did return to Judah got lost 
in a morass of constantly growing, a constantly growing number of rules and regulations required in order to earn their salvation. And this sorry state of affairs lasted until Christ came. And I'm under the impression, based on the actions of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are recorded in the Gospels, that they knew that the Christ was due. The timeline provided by Daniel gives little doubt as to when the Messiah would come. I suspect that this expectation was prominent in Judea. The Gospels tell us of Simeon, who praised God saying, now I can finally die in peace because I have seen the Christ. The Gospels tell us of Anna, who took up the baby Jesus in her arms and began to tell everyone around that He was the long-awaited Messiah. These people were witnesses to three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. They saw Him raise the, uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, give sight to the blind, miraculously multiply food, preach the Gospel, and fulfill 324 prophecies. And these prophecies were not fulfilled by Jesus intentionally going out of His way to do things. They were events that simply happened in the course of His life. Though God was actually fulfilling His Word, in a very real sense, Jesus was passively fulfilling these prophecies. These people rejected that witness. They used a corrupt government to have Jesus executed, and when the slimy politician Pontius Pilate tried to distance himself from moral culpability for Jesus' death, they cried out, His blood be upon us and our children forever. We have no king but Caesar. That's who's persecuting the recipients of this epistle to the Hebrews. The people telling you to make just one more concession, to tone down the rhetoric, to be more winsome, these people are not your friends. No one has ever had as much evidence as they did, and no one has persisted more in unbelief. If you successfully resist one attack, they'll just circle the wagons and come back for round two. Cain will always hate Abel. This is a doctrine that the church in America, indeed much of the West, needs to relearn and relearn pretty quick. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, we have waxed fat. We have grown complacent and forgotten that the city of man always stands opposed to the city of God. The vessels of wrath will always hate the vessels of mercy. The seed of the serpent will always be at war with the seed of the woman. We neglect this to our own peril. This world is not our friend. Apostate Christianity is not our friend. You will get sold down the river just as fast by so-called liberal Christians as you will by Hollywood sodomites. We live in a state of war, and preparation is half the battle. As the saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we remember that we are living, as it were, in occupied territory, then we won't fall victim to the silly fantasy that if we make just one more concession to the spirit of the age, the world will finally accept us, respect us, and like us. Every concession the church makes to the false church and the world only emboldens them to push for more. It's very difficult, of course, to overcome the hurt of failed expectations. 
But the church has no business expecting the favor of the world. And this compromise with the world is usually presented under the guise of making our gospel witness winsome or appealing. So you see that the situation of the original recipients of this epistle is not particularly unique to God's people. The temptation to compromise is always here. And so Paul, using the history of the rebellious murmurers, tells us to encourage one another with that word, today. A reference to Psalm 95.7 which says, Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the rebellion. Now there are a couple of important pastoral applications in the last two verses of our text. First, that we must keep in mind the principle of 1 Corinthians 15.33. Evil company corrupts good habits. There is a tension between the honest desire of Christians to see the church grow and the fact that God has ordained His church to be, as He calls it, a little flock. When we compromise clear biblical doctrines and principles in order to gain new converts, we weaken ourselves. And the more of these worldlings we flood our churches with, the more influence they attain until we arrive at where we are today. The public faces of evangelicalism, even Reformed evangelicalism, both persecute and support the state-sanctioned persecution of faithful pastors and churches. You know things are bad when the mouthpieces for historically conservative denominations are promoting the same evils as the God-hating entertainment industry and promoting them under the cover of gospel witness, as if the gospel is proclaimed by denying it. The second pastoral application can be seen clearly in verse 14, which reads, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Again, this is not stating a condition. It is not saying that in order to be a partaker of Christ, you have to hold your confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, it is not making salvation contingent upon you and your works. That would be the position of those persecuting Paul's audience here. The passage is saying that the way that you know someone is a partaker of Christ is that they have persevered. The person who falls away was never a partaker of Christ. It's hidden, written here literally in black and blue. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they may be manifest, that none of them were of us. When we see apostasy, first of all, we shouldn't be surprised. And secondly, we shouldn't be swayed. That's the message Paul is conveying to us by the examples of the unbelievers who died in the wilderness. They never entered God's rest because they were never partakers of His covenant. Paul says that it's the evil heart of unbelief that departs from the living God. Let's pray.